0: I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading.
1: Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway
0: to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh yes, yes, my dear fellow, I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. With me, as always, is that lanky fungus eater, Jeff Goad. Mmm, mushroomy. And uh, we're very excited to have our special guest, the professor, Katie Shreve's.
1: Hello. Hey, hey Katie. <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank hey, you. Katie.
0: It's great it's to a see you again. Pleasure to be here. And like I it. say again, because Katie had us uh, as special guests for her class, Critical Hits, at UMass Lowell. And you mm-hmm. want to tell, us, tell people a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So um, last fall, I had the pleasure of teaching an honor seminar that I got to uh, design. And so I decided to make an appendix and themed class <laughs> called Critical yes. Hits in Fantasy Fiction. <laughs> and uh, in fact, partly inspired by you guys and your podcast. And I was very honored when you both agreed to appear as guest experts in my classroom. So uh, <laughs> thank you very much again.
0: That was That was a lot of fun. And was that in that preparation for that class, was that how you had come to hear about Appendix N or had you heard about it, you know, further in the past and how did it relate to your gaming history?
2: Well, so I didn't start gaming until pretty late in life, I guess, um, compared to, I know many of your guests in in, in your podcast in the past. Um, I didn't start gaming until I was in grad school. I was working on my PhD in English and, um, another person in my department, uh, the husband of one of my colleagues was running a DD game, and I get got in on that. And it was uh, 3.5, and we played every week. And um, I guess I was procrastinating working on my uh, master's thesis at the time because we would get together and play until like 2 in the morning sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was really how I got into it. And um, I, I should say that for that reason, I have less experience with older versions of D&D since I started playing in 3.5. And now what I mostly play, I'm almost hesitant to admit this, is Pathfinder.
0: There's got to be one in every crowd.
2: In <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've played a couple of sessions of D- DCC, um, and I have, you know, a, and actually I think one session of uh, first edition AD&D, but that's pretty much my only kind of OSR type experience. Mm-hmm. Had, um, had-
0: I'm sorry had you been a fantasy reader leading up to this uh, you know uh, in, or fantasy science fiction, and were you reading any of the older stuff?
2: Uh, yes. So, um, I mean, I've been a fantasy reader since since I was a very small child, um, since I was, I think, in, in third grade, and a teacher read The Hobbit aloud to my class, and then, you know, I was kind of off to the races, and within, you know, a year or two, I was was reading The Silmarillion. <laughs> so I really got into it.
0: Well, you beat, you beat me to the post on that one, that's for sure. <laughs>
2: Um, So, I mean, I I definitely, I read a lot of Tolkien as a kid, but then, you know, I didn't come to the Appendix N, most of the Appendix N stuff until much later, really. Um, I read a lot of kind of derivative fantasy fiction as a child, like Terry Brooks, that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah. Um, And it wasn't until much later that I became aware of the existence of the Appendix N. And, um, yeah, and in fact, actually, it was your podcast that inspired me to start reading that in a more systematic way, in Mm -hmm. fact. So...
0: And any particularly interesting discoveries, maybe not related to specific text, but just overall in sort of the corpus of Appendix N uh, as it relates to fantasy or to even, you know, modern literature? Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I know that I've really enjoyed all
2: of the reading that I've done. Let's put it mm-hmm. that way. Yeah, yeah. And
0: uh, I guess that's a good sign to talk to about the book we're reading this week, which is Margaret St. Clair's Sign of the Labrys.
2: Oh, I have the same one. (laughs) So do
1: I. All three of us are working from the same
0: copy. That's exciting. Very cool. cool. (laughs) Now, it is actually still available in a Dover trade paperback. So this is one of the few that of her books is actually in print at the moment. Yeah, most of her
1: stuff is really tied up in weird rights confusion. So a lot of
0: her stuff is out of print. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, cool. Cool. You want to give a uh, read the back copy? I think it's pretty pretty amazing. Oh my god, the back copy is hilarious.
2: Yeah, so we're all we all have the same edition, which was I suppose the first edition published in 1963. And on the back, it's oh, there's so many so many exclamation points! Women, (laughs) women are writing science fiction, original, brilliant. Dazzling, And there's one exclamation point and then two and then three. <laughs> and, then, and then we have this fabulous paragraph. Women are closer to the primitive than men. They are <laughs> conscious of the moon pulls, the earth tides. They possess a buried memory of humankind's obscure and ancient past, which can emerge to uniquely color and flavor a novel. Such a woman is Margaret St. Clair, author of this novel. Such a novel is this, the Sign of the Labrys, the story of a doomed world of the future saved by recourse to ageless immemorial rights fresh imaginative inventive
1: so <laughs> <laughs> katie do you think that text was written by a man or by a woman
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh gosh who even who even knows actually <laughs> there are probably plenty of women of the time who would have represented this story in that way sure right, right,
0: right, yeah wonder, i wonder if this back copy is directly reflective on the holmes blue book you know the holmes is uh fresh exciting imaginative um isn't that a phrase hmm. in the Holmes, Holmes? Oh, is it? Yeah, I didn't know that. Oh, that's hilarious! Right, and yeah. Holmes, of course, was a you know a literary. I mean, he was a psychologist, but I know he was pretty liter pretty literary man himself too. So,
1: hmm, and we've got this William George cover. What do you guys think of the cover art?
0: There are no cavemen in this book.
1: (laughs) No. Yeah. I don't know who that guy is supposed to be. It's so it's got,
2: um, yeah, for those of you who don't, who haven't seen it, it has two people, a man and a woman kind of in the background. And then in the foreground, it has this caveman looking guy brandishing a scimitar. Um, (laughs) He's wearing rags and he's just covered in, in hair. And it's very strange. I've, have no idea what that's supposed to be. There's some white rats, and there are there are there are white rats that appear right. in the book repeatedly. And, it's and the... this pointy
1: ring is is hanging in the forefront, and there's also mm-hmm. the sign of the labrys uh, carved into the back wall as well. So mm-hmm. clearly, yeah. the art was designed specific to the novel, which is interesting. Then why we have this strange hairy caveman?
2: Maybe that's supposed to be. I wondered if it was supposed to be Sorensen's monster, which uh, is this this creature that we're that. Kira mentions a few times that we're told about, but we never actually see. Uh, Mm,
0: The blob thing that we, yeah, we don't, we only taking her word for it that it's a blob.
1: Yeah. Well, I know in the sixties and seventies, oftentimes movie trailers were made from cutout scenes. Perhaps the cover of this book was illustrated from a cutout scene. Mm. All right, so that is the edition that we're all working with, the 1963 Bantam Books paperback. So let's take a look at our Hygaxian word of the day. And I have a little bit of a cop-out. I chose the word labrys as our word of the day. and That one. (laughs) It's it's in the title. And a labrys, actually, Margaret St. Clairs tells us what a labrys is on page nine. It says, where is that? My heart jumped. I took the flashlight from my belt and examined the sign carefully. No, it wasn't a seven, but a much older symbol. Somebody, it must have been quite difficult to do, had drawn on the grayish stone the old, old sign of the labrys, the double-headed axe. So a labrys is a double-headed axe. Now, Katie, as an English professor, did you have any words that popped out at you?
2: Yeah, so my uh, word of the day was carnelian, which I I confess I thought of that because when I think of D&D, one of the things I think of is uh, lists of, you know, random tables of weird semi-precious stones that you could possibly get as treasure. (laughs) (laughs) And that seems perfect for that. And it's on page 15. It's the stone that is in um, Despina's ring. Um, it was set with a flat elliptical stone, Carnelian, I thought, engraved in Intaglio.
1: Ooh. And mm. one of the books that we'll be discussing at some point is Elsprague de Camp's The Carnelian Cube.
0: Ooh. There you go. Nice. I have a word. So Are we you? will
1: return to Carnelian.
0: Yeah. I have a word. It's on page 116. It's um, I don't I don't speak Greek, so I don't pronounce them properly. Catab catabases. Um, which singular is catabasis. And which uh, generally we hear about it from. It means a, a journey down, and so in this case, a trip to the underworld, and so that's pretty appropriate. Um, Absolutely, it, yeah, that's great. And, and that that's funny.
2: Both of your be- words were words that I thought of too <laughs> as potential.
0: <laughs> <words>. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, she's not actually generally throwing in words just for the sake of throwing words in. She's like she's definitely picking the words very carefully for the all the implications. I think that the word entails rather than just say oh it's a journey to the underworld right so um because the rest of her language is um the book is very weird and elusive and we'll get into that but the rest of her language is pretty plain i would say
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, so katie one thing i would love to ask is you know we when we discussed having you on the show you specifically wanted to do this book and i'm curious what was it about this book that that really kind of drew you in
2: it was part because I had um, heard your episode about the shadow people and read that and I, lo-
1: I loved that one.
2: <laughs> I it's so, it was trippy. so I wanted an excuse to read something else by Margaret St. Clair, <laughs> to be
1: honest. <laughs> Perfect. So having read The Shadow People and now having read The Sign of the Labrys, what do you think of this book?
2: Oh, I loved this one too. This one was also extremely weird. <laughs> it's <laughs> a very strange book, much like The Shadow People. Um, I could actually see a lot of similarities between this and The Shadow People.
1: Absolutely.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this one it, it also like The Shadow People, it is about in in large part this kind of descent to this hidden underworld. There's a lot and there's a lot of similarity in um kind of an attitude about the government and authority in both Mm -hmm. books, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, A sense of kind of paranoia about people trying to control you. Right.
1: right. Um, (laughs)
0: Yeah. In both cases, the protagonist finds out that they're not fully human or potentially more than human, which is interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, in this one, he finds out he's the devil.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, the person, he's actually the creature that people have (laughs) called the devil. (laughs) And
0: and, um, they're both kind of sort of, alienated have a slightly flat affect in in ways yeah. or at least they describe themselves as having flat affect mm. we have to t- we have to take their word for it in a way because <laughs> a little bit unreliable as narrators um, yeah and it's, also
1: it's, it's a world that's that's um that the presence of hallucin hallucinogenics are just yes. kind of everywhere like everybody's on drugs and nobody <laughs> really knows what's real and what isn't real and people mm-hmm. are kind of constantly kind of going in and out of reality and kind of their own perceived
0: universe. Right. Mm-hmm. It's such a weird sort of mashup to you. Cause here we have this thing. That's a, a dy- dystopian uh, post-apocalyptic novel. When people were basically have survived this fungal, apo- fungal apocalypse. Right. You know, but then there's Wicca just like thrown in, <laughs> right. Which we think of as very mm-hmm. primeval, right. Not thinking as a sort of future facing. And then, you know, like, eight tenths of the way through the story, suddenly there's anti-grav and matter, trans- matter transmission. Like, where'd that come from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: We did have, pre- have precedent with that, though, in the Shadow People, because suddenly
0: right. she goes upstairs and now there's, like, flying robots. and <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess she was laying the groundwork for Shadow People, because I guess this was six years before Shadow People. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think culturally, Shadow People, you can sort of see, sort of picked up on sort of the hippie stuff. This is sort of pre-hippie. Um, yeah. You know, and then... Um, I was also reading because she was, she was really into Wicca, but she, at this point, um, what was happening was that Wicca hadn't really um, become full-blown in the United States yet. People who were getting into it We had to sort of um, get these bootleg texts from, I think, Gerald Gardner was the sort of founder of modern Wicca. And so she wasn't fully indoctrinated into Wicca until, I think, three years after she wrote this book. But she was already sort of doing a lot of the research. And, and I guess she must have been really fascinated by sort of the primeval archetypes and sort of folded it back into the story so
1: now did either of you go through kind of a a teenage wicca phase i know i certainly did
2: no not exactly for me
1: (laughs) (laughs) i remember when i was 13 i picked up scott cunningham's the 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 what is it the um the 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 wiccan guide to the solitary practitioner i think Mm -hmm. i was like 13 and i was so ready to start casting spells
0: um i wasn't but uh one of my um uh child my Parents' uh, friends when I was a, a young child was uh, Margot Adler who wrote this book Drawing Down the Moon, which was also a very mm-hmm. popular text in the seventies about Wicca that brought a lot of people into mm-hmm. it. And um, so I sort of had a vague consciousness of that it was sort of a you know primal female you know entity in in focused religion. And how many how many of these people believed it in it as a religion? I don't know, or if it was just a, a you know a spiritual practice or just counterculture at that point because I was growing up around a lot of hippies. So. Um, mm-hmm. but no, it was never, never particular. I guess it was my reaction was like, oh, hippies, gosh. <laughs> you know, right? was...
1: <laughs> so Katie, I'm curious, how do, do you, feel that this was a more or less successful novel than the shadow people?
2: Oh, e- equally, I think. Equally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, you know, in this novel, we do a lot of, you know, kind of going in and out of kind of dream logic. How, how did that work for you as a reader?
2: Mm, I, don't, I mean, it was certainly interesting. I mean, much like in The Shadow People, the narrator spends a lot of the time high, basically, and hallucinating here uh, in the, that, the first. So uh, in the first maybe third of the novel, then Sam, our protagonist, is descending from the uh, kind of the surface world through these levels of um, kind of underground, more than bunkers, they're un- underground zones that are that are built and he's he's been he doesn't know it but he's been infected by a strain of this fungus the yeast plague and is hallucinating the whole time um and uh yeah i mean it's it's just it's it, it is hard to to disentangle what's really happening versus what um he's sam is imagining what did you think of the uh style of veneration
1: I loved it, but I'm also the kind of person who's prone to liking things like that. You know, I I know that, uh, for example, if you if you watch Mulholland Drive, have you seen Mulholland Drive? Uh,
0: no, I have not, but I've seen a lot of Lynch, but not okay. Mulholland Drive.
1: So it's a it's a David Lynch movie that I absolutely adore, and it's the kind of movie that if you are the kind of reader or the kind of viewer who desperately wants to understand why this is happening, what's real and what's not real, and you want it all to kind of tie up neatly and make sense to you, it's going to be a very frustrating experience. So I can imagine this uh, sign of the labyrinth being a very frustrating experience for a lot of readers. I, however, totally love that kind of stuff. And I'm absolutely okay sitting in the not knowing what part is real and what part isn't real and really just kind of experiencing uh, what what our protagonist is going through. I'm just, I'm along for the ride, and I think she does a great job of. If you like that, if you like to have that kind of an experience, I think this book is definitely one for you. But if you don't, mm-hmm. I'd say avoid it.
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess it's pretty significant that it wasn't reprinted until very recently, so that it you know it's sort of a cult book, but didn't have never found a, ma- a mass audience. is my guess.
1: Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: But I do say that I think um, again, she's her her prose is very clean, so it, yeah. she she. So you know, there's a lower barrier to entry in some ways, like what's happening is very weird, but you're not having to struggle with the prose and, mm-hmm. and the book's only 139 pages. So I think she, that, that helps a lot too. <laughs> uh, but there is definitely some weird ellipses, like from where it jumps from one scene to the next and you're like, wait, you know, <laughs> did I, did I miss something? Um, and uh, I think she just wants you to get into that sort of altered state as you're reading as well. Um, yeah. It's my impression.
1: And one thing I really like about Margaret St. Clair, and perhaps you guys might disagree with this, is I uh, she's one of the three female appendix and authors. and Lee Brackett and Andre Norton, who I both adore, I feel like sometimes you can really see Lee Brackett and Andre Norton kind of pandering to the male audience, or maybe if maybe pandering is not the right word, but they're very much writing with the idea that most of the readers might be male at the forefront. And I feel like Margaret St. Clair doesn't do that. And I don't know if it's an intentional rejection of that model or if she's just like not as concerned with that. Uh, But just like the fact that like as our protagonist is going down into lower level, suddenly he like encounters this like naked man with a stag's head and like this, this like naked man comes up and like tears his shirt off of him. And like, it just, it's the kind of thing that I don't really feel like I'd see anybody else in the appendix and right it really is very specific to margaret st Clair, and i appreciate that
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah i think um there's something and, and her male characters her two male protagonists we've seen again have been somewhat blank slates to extent and, and so they're not dominant they're they're very important and crucial to the narrative but they're not dominant you know archetypal figures
2: yeah yeah i would agree with that they're both yeah both sam and dick from the shadow people are both kind of they're kind of ciphers they're kind of pushed along by the by the narrator or the, by the narrative and you don't i mean even though it's told from the, from from sam's first person perspective it, it you don't get a tremendous sense of what his personality is like really True. um yeah and I, w- I would agree with that about um i mean her like her representation of female characters is um she's not it's not super lurid or um sensational necessarily like it's kind of interesting even and even the way that her male narrators think about the female characters like when sam is thinking about um despina toward when they finally have sex toward toward the end then he think he's thinking about the times when he's seen her in the past and he thinks how when he first met her she was naked to the waist down but clothed in authority which i thought was a a beautiful
1: (laughs) phrase
0: yes (laughs) (laughs) and um I actually looked this up. So Despina is her name, but it's also a term, basically, I guess it's a Greek translation means mistress. So it could also be a title. Oh, interesting. Um, a title, I know that. Title for a head of like a coven. Um, and so it's, it's um, yeah, that's, that's uh, a little, little Wikipedia entry. I didn't get too, too deep into it, but that's what it means. So, cool. uh, you know, and then I guess the, the yeah, the, the women characters are all very interesting, right? So there's, there's her, there's, is what, uh, the woman who turns out to be his half sister was also in the 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 both the person who destroys the world and the person who saves the world, right? Uh, <laughs> and then there's the the sort of the sort of um, uh, hedonists on is it level G? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah,
2: Cindy Ann.
0: Cindy Ann. Oh yes, yeah, Cindy
1: Ann.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that felt incredibly sort of like Instagram generation, even though it was you know, 1963. <laughs> there was uh-huh. there was that vibe of that a little bit. Um, it seemed almost Kardashian like or something.
2: the important people
0: right so um so this this sort of journey through a mythic underworld right with these layers that become sort of at at first kind of mundane and drab and then they become increasingly weird and strange as they go through there and then all of a sudden there's this you know again this level g which is the one from above the sort of the final destination is this where all the vips are and they're they're all also tripping in on you know the equivalent of um ecstasy and you know just being hedonistic <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's one of the other things that's interesting is that the side effect of this uh, fungus plague is that it makes people antisocial they can't stand each other's company except for when they briefly want to have sex or you know very tra- their relationships are very transactional right mm-hmm. and so that's kind of interesting and then we have these villains who are seemingly very affable which is the FBY um, so yeah let's talk about I, I guess um, our reactions to I guess both the women protagonists and the FBY if, uh, if you have anything interesting to say about, you know, either of those uh, groups.
2: Hmm. Well, I mean, I think that it, it was interesting to me that uh, it seems like one of the themes in this novel, like if I were going to teach it in a, in, in a class, <laughs> I guess, then one, one of the issues that we would almost certainly talk about is uh, society and people's urge to dominate each other. Mm-hmm. That. Um, you know, it's, it, at first, it starts out with this um, a society which is which is fragmented, and people have very little um, motivation to do to do anything because they're mm-hmm. so dissociated from other people. And the FBY, the Federal Bureau of Yeasts, <laughs> 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 um, is a uh, you know initially portrayed as a kind of innocuous organization but then it becomes clear that they're actually this like shadowy pseudo government that's trying that's trying to take control um and you know she seems through 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 the lens of sam the narrator she seems very skeptical of um kind of centralized authority i think um and it also seems like it ties in with the um the relationship between the 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 Wiccan characters and the and and everyone else that they that Sam and Despina and Kira and Ross seem to represent, um, people trying to get back to a more sort of primal connection both with nature and with each other mm-hmm. that has been
1: lost. And what what do you guys think of
2: that kind of stuff?
1: Well, I feel like, you know, Margaret St. Clair, she was she was living in in Berkeley. And this is the 1960s and 1963 is definitely pre the hippie movement but this is kind of what the hippie movement came out of and i feel like it's really clear that she's got her finger on the pulse of whatever that was that the hippie movement came out of so it's interesting watch um, first reading the shadow people which is written in 1969 when that was in full swing And then Mm -hmm. reading this, which is, you know, kind of right before that movement really took off. Um, And I don't know. It's interesting because I feel like the ideas that are brought forth in this are explored kind of more fully in the shadow people in the same way that kind of the ideas of hippie culture were um, better defined by 1969, Mm -hmm. including Mm -hmm. the distrust of of government. Right,
0: right. Mm -hmm. And, and we're sort of going backwards through her 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 body of work and so I would be interested to see if any of this showed up in her short stories because she was really known as a short story writer and she wrote something like 130 short stories uh, mm-hmm. leading up to this and uh, at this point she was not um she was you know a little older I think she was in her early 50s when she wrote this story so mm-hmm. tips would be wrapped up in a counterculture but also have that life experience and also that experience of having written for the pulps and lived through you know, all the, all the stuff that a person of her age at that time would have lived through and, in, mm-hmm. and have it that inform the storyline, I think is uh, pretty fascinating. So, I, you know, I guess, uh, try to drilling back through her body work. I would be interested to see any of these themes pop up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And what's also, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that there, that the authors who only have a couple of titles listed, we are still exploring beyond what's recommended on the appendix N because with, with Margaret St. Clair, it's just the shadow people in Sign of the Labrys that's recommended. She doesn't have a little at all at the end of her name. Um, I'm I'm sure that doesn't mean that Gary Gygax was saying you shouldn't read anything else by her. Uh, but it's also not explicitly saying also continue reading more by her. Uh, but we're going to be reading more by her anyway. So I, I, I'm also excited to see what what her other works look like that Gary Gygax didn't specifically
0: recommend. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, Kate, uh, uh, Katie, if um, if you were to teach this book, have you taught? Did you teach shadow people or, or will you be teaching this in one of your classes later on?
2: No. Well, shadow people, definitely not, because that one you can't, uh, you can't that one's
0: buy. out of print, right? Um, mm-hmm. This one,
2: actually, I didn't know this one was uh, was in print um, I don't know, I might if it if it remains in print, I might try to teach it because I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in it. And I wonder what student how students would react to it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I mean, it was I was very uh, I was very uh, impressed by the thoughtfulness of your students, especially considering that they weren't you know English majors per se. I didn't think they were all STEM students, right? You ha- that you had in your-
2: they were, yeah. It was a it was an English seminar that was held on the uh, the science and engineering campus. So yeah, they were they were mostly STEM majors,
0: right. But they seemed to be very receptive to to you know I mean they definitely had their preferences, but they were very receptive to what was going on. You know, in that class, so I was very impressed by that. So I think you know, this would be a bit of a curveball, but I think you would have a lot of interesting discussion in this class if you had, if you did teach. Yeah. It. So, yeah.
1: And this is probably a good time to move the conversation over to the gaming side. So, Katie did did you find that your students had much gaming experience?
2: mixed uh, so a few did a small handful did there were there was also a small handful who had never gamed in their lives mm-hmm. um and there were um, maybe there were a lot of them who had played like one session of something like DD at some point and almost all of them had played video games so yeah <laughs> that was that was kind of the experience of my students coming into the appendix M class that i taught
1: um now, yeah. having read a fair amount of appendix in yourself, and now having read both The Shadow People and Sign of the Labyrinth, what is it about this book and Margaret Sinclair that you think um inspired Gary Gygax to list her specifically?
2: Uh well, I think I mean there are there are a few things that that came to my mind when I was trying to think of how to answer that question because I knew you were going to ask it <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah, there, there's the whole the obvious thing that this is it's kind of like a mega dungeon that yes. you know we have these these literally labeled you know level G level F <laughs> level E3
1: <laughs> um, and it gets more and more dangerous and difficult the lower you get yes but yeah, which is also true like in, in old school AD&D your le- dungeon level 1 was the first level Underneath the ground, and it's where the easiest monsters lived. And by the time you got down to dungeon level 20, that's where you would like walk into one room and find a lich, and the next room would have a red <laughs> dragon, and the room after that would have a mummy king. <laughs> um,
0: I'm interested though, because I wonder if, and I mean, obviously, we don't have Gary around to ask him directly. I mean, he's just issues of form, right? So we have this this physical thing of this complex that they're going through and, and you know getting more dangerous, but was he into thematically what was going on in this book? Was he into the mood that was being set up as well? Because these both are relatively similar. I mean, you can definitely tell mm-hmm. once you've read this one and read Shadow People. Oh, this is a Margaret St Sinclair book, right? Um, yeah. And so definitely they had a lot. It had enough appeal for him to list it beyond the fact of, you know, I mean, he had to read a book. had to have read both books, right? And say, oh, wow, this is really cool and weird. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of not what I picture when I think of gary guy guys because you know i think of this guy who you know plays war games and you know he's he's well read in a sort of autodidactic kind of way but you know i wouldn't have think of him as a hippie right
1: yeah because i also think about how clark ashton smith isn't included in the list and then my theories around that tend to be okay uh you know gary was catholic and maybe didn't care for kind of how perverse clark ashton smith's writing is but then We've got Margaret Sinclair, who isn't perverse, but it's also very counterculture. So it is surprising to me that he does seem to like this counterculture science fiction and fantasy author. Um, One thing that I think is really cool about the way her dungeons work, though, is that the way to get from point A to point B is often not walking down a hallway? Yeah. Like in the shadow people, you would walk from basement to basement. You would push aside a pile of luggage, and that would somehow get you into a different person's basement. And then you'd <laughs> walk behind their shelf of cans. And but like, but a lot of it, the way it was described, it didn't really feel like it was like a literal straight path. And here it's even weirder. Like right. she, at one point, Kira gives him like basically poppers to sniff or something. And then he climbs into an autoclave (laughs) and somehow that's what takes him from levels F to level G. But then when he's on level G, he just like wakes up and he's like in the grass or something surrounded by trees and daylight, even though he's even deeper and deeper into the underworld. Like it it makes no literal sense, but that's the beauty of both the novel and of role-playing is it doesn't need to make perfect sense. Like we can, we can, we can, with our imaginations, create these worlds that don't necessarily add up
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and Katie, in any of your gaming, have you sort of embraced dream logic or, or sort of pushed for that to sort of come to the forefront um, either as a player or as a game master um. Well, I don't I am not a game master myself. I prefer
2: to play. Um but yeah, actually the very first game that I played in, we we did we we traveled to like the plane of shadow and things were very mm-hmm. weird there. So yeah, maybe so actually. Now that I think about it, maybe more of my gaming experience has been inspired by that kind of dreamlike aesthetic than I might even, even think. Yeah. Yeah, and then and this, there's also a lot of um you know secret doors and mm-hmm. hidden things and, and it, it's it's kind of uh, suggested that the levels are more complicated and uh there are a lot of, there's a lot more hidden stuff than even sam knows about right. so yeah. each
0: level it's, it's really a misnomer it's a series of tiers and you know it's not always up it's you know, we're down and and it's just, and the, some of the connections are not direct right sometimes you have to go up to go down i think it seems yeah. like um, yeah
1: yeah. Okay. And there's no one way to get from levels F to level G, but he just happens to f- try to find the best way to do it. And sometimes it's, it's a very roundabout way. Like he becomes friends with a dog and he's <laughs> right. able to see that it has two brains <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then the dog wants him to throw a stick in the water. And then he realizes that if he follows the stick into the water, that'll somehow pull him into some kind of a current that will whisk <laughs> him down to the next level.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> And then when they're back on the surface and they need to get back down to level uh, level H, like, oh, it's been blown up. You know, the FBY has blown up all the, and, and literally killed all the sort of the hedonists on level G, completely collapsed that level so that they can't get back to level H to find uh, what they need to find, which is actually the the bunker of the president of the United States of America is down
1: there. Right? But he, <laughs> right. he died a long time ago too. Right.
0: <laughs> and so then they find this basically like a wading pool. And there's a guy who was like a weapons des- uh, designer who fell into it and is fossilized essentially. <laughs> right. And, and then I this still love how
1: down there people kept hopping out with grenades and flamethrowers.
0: Right. <laughs> and then there's this, there's this mechanical goldfish that have to be left back in the pool. So they can discern the magnetic pattern before they can lie down in this pool and then get transported to, uh, level H and then in that he also has to, he becomes dissociated, right? When he's transported and he has to like recover his personality in order to even recover his pers his physical self. So I guess there's a little bit of like, uh, astral plane stuff that might've appealed yeah. to Gary Gygax as well. You know, some of that stuff in the, sort of the appendix of the, um, I think it was the player's handbook appendix in, um, you know, uh, uh, advanced dungeons and dragons. Um, so just crazy stuff. And then all of a sudden, of course, there's this anti-gravity shaft that they find <laughs> also, um, which lets them go straight from the top all the way down to the bottom. It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. very cool.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, Katie, I know that most of your experience has been with 3.5 and Pathfinder, and my experience with those particular games is they tend to be very concrete, uh, very much like we have a rule for this and a rule for that. And if the if if the people at the table aren't sure how to adjudicate something, they can turn to a certain page and find out exactly what their f- official rule for that is. And I'm curious, do you feel like that style of gaming lends itself to this kind of style of fiction um, naturally? Can't or, or can it work if you force it? Or do you think you should really use a totally different kind of system for this style of gaming?
2: Oh, that's a tough question. I, I think, I mean, this would be, if, if you're asking if this book is gameable. I would say it would be very hard to come up with a game that would simulate what happens in the, in, in this book. Um, is that what you're asking?
1: Sure, is sure. That, or... um, yeah, because I, I mean, I guess I I feel like it would be hard to play a game that's got this kind of vibe mm-hmm. if you're using a rule set that is very kind of strict. I feel like a story game. Or a very rules-light OSR game would yeah. kind of be the best approach for something this fluid.
0: Right. To yeah. me, I think it probably would be Fate, in this case, would probably be the most appropriate game for this because you know, these characters are sort of... Arch- they have these sort of archetypal aspects about them. And so Despoina is like this keeper of knowledge, but she's not going to hand out the knowledge. You still have to earn this knowledge through initiations.
2: Mm-hmm. Right?
0: Yeah. Um, and so that would be an aspect, I guess. Or, you know, as much as I understand Fate, I'm not... Again, I've, I've talked about my inability to fully grasp fate i think i need to be in a good session with a really good game master of fate to really to get get under the hood on that game but i think that seems to be like a game where because you can define yourself by you're not locked into okay here's my strength here's my decks here's this you can define yourself by a number of attributes that you you create yeah
1: yeah I i feel like if if you were playing a game that tried to hit every plot point that we had in this story it would be very a very frustrating experience and feel very railroady but i but i feel like this book isn't that i feel like this book is if we're looking at it from a gaming perspective an example of what can happen if you're saying yes to everything that you're everything interesting that your players are giving to you and adjusting what you had in mind based on what they're giving you like if your players give you some kind of weird curveball and they now like want to like try to like like use the, the new psychic powers they might have from the uh, drugs they're on to look inside this weird dog and see if they can find something <laughs> out about it. And sure, that can be where you're like, oh yeah, okay, you're looking in there and it has two brains, sure. <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay. Yeah. And, All right. you, and you just kind of see where that takes you. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like this is a good example potentially of that kind of style of gaming.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a, an overarching framework that maybe a purely sort of um, improv-based style is not grasping necessarily. So I, I, I think um, I like to say, and again, I'm not an improv actor. I know that that's the common phrase. Yes, and mm-hmm. I'm more of a, like a yes, but <laughs> sure, sure you can have that. But <laughs> right, but I don't know. That's just my thought on it. And what about you, uh, Katie? If you were uh, thinking about this, both from a player's point of view, and again, if you were again, you're not. I know you're not game master, but you're saying if you were going to create a world. yeah to deal with well i
2: do think i mean sam strikes me as being like an extremely creative person's pc Mm -hmm. (laughs) um I mean, he's he, he's uh first of all, he he levels up through the course of the novel, which mm-hmm. is is kind of interesting. Um, I mean, there's this kind of training montage that he he goes through.
1: <laughs> Fair, um, yeah, yeah.
2: Sure. He and he much like um I'm not I mean I'm not sure if this is this was the case in uh you know first edition days, but. I think nowadays people tend to make characters that have mysterious backstories that are, you know, un- left to unfold in, in the course of the campaign. And Sam is very much like that um, where he starts off not even really knowing who he is or understanding himself or thinking that he's kind of a regular person, but then discovering that actually he's not. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I, I really like that point that you just made about him being sort of a clever characters person. I could see him almost being just like an avatar of, like this higher consciousness, which he, he gains right through, through his initiations. Right. So at first he's just basically this sort of pawn that moves as an object that moves through level E or wherever he is. And, you know, he, he gets tired of canned foods. He goes, looks, looks for purple fungus and cuts some of that off. And so he's just doing the sort of exploring the environment in a very rudimentary way. And then as he gets more knowledge and he gets deeper and deeper into the labyrinth and his, as you say, his powers expand, his, his consciousness, his ability to do the very things, um, yeah, I think that's a really, really good point.
1: Yeah. Now, how does the magic system in Sign of the Labrys compare to Dungeons and Dragons magic system?
2: I think in, in 3.5 or Pathfinder, these these characters and their magic could be pretty well simulated by making them all sorcerers. <laughs> I okay. will say that. <laughs> um, yeah. What do you, What do you guys think?
0: I think it's closer in old school gaming to that sort of mess that is psionics in <laughs> first edition and sort of the end of OD and D, you know, cause there's like, you know, possession and mm-hmm. um, mental defenses, cause he's getting mental, mental pressures being put on him and he's losing his personality at certain points and he has to regain it. So I think in earlier editions of D and think it would be most like psionics, but I think um, not having played 3.5, I think, uh, but knowing that the sorcerers get sort of, less defined but imbued powers rather than like magic users where they just know specific spells i think that would be probably a good model for mm-hmm. current yeah
2: names. and they're also associated with with sorcerers or associated with bloodlines so it's this kind of um it, it's like in terms of flavor imagined as this kind of inherited capacity that mm. um right. you know that sam and his half-sister and Despina all seem to have right, right. Yeah.
0: and there is that sort of past life regression right he has those moments of remembering the sort of the greek rites but also remembering when, I guess, when he's one of his ancestors is being executed by the Spanish Inquisition. There's that scene where he has the noose and the person's like, you know, listen, it'll really be better if you let me strangle you, (laughs) right? Because the implication is that if he doesn't, then he'll be burned alive at the stake, which is much worse, right? And so, uh, and it's really weird how, so. go ahead. Those
1: those are all really great points. And in a lot of ways, I feel like that's, uh, those are all really great ways of modeling the magic system in here. Also, I feel like though, that the magic system in here is also, quite different from DD in a lot of ways too. Uh, Like one one sentence I really liked is it says magic indubitably works, but its processes, generally speaking, have an organic slowness, like the growth of a flower. It is difficult to hurry them. So inside of the Labyrinth, magic is something that you really have to spend time with to kind of let it grow and let it kind of come to its fruition. And also there's that moment where Kira shapeshifts, quote unquote, but what she really does is she becomes invisible. But what she, but she mentions that like, it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. So magic is slow and magic also really drains your vital resources, which is something that neither of those two things tend to be very true in D&D, but do kind of come up in the appendix N a a lot. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's a, a style of magic. That's very, um, very much rooted in kind of pulp fantasy, but not really emulated much in the gaming that came out of it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's a, one quote that I thought was, was interesting. It was um, towards the very end when they encounter the, the leader of the FBY, and the narrator thinks that the FBI guy thought that the craft was a bag of valuable tricks, whereas it was a glowing faith. Um, yeah, which was kind of and and I mean some things that are that occur in here like there's that the ritual where um, uh, Sam and Despina and Ross are are scrying that that it takes a really long time and requires them to do all this really. Um, specific and weird stuff. Mm. Um, and that just doesn't happen in D and d games where, right. you know, you want your spells to take place in a six second time period. Right, right.
1: Sure. <laughs> but then on the flip side of that too, in a very early scene, we've got the FBY agent who like has just like um, like a piece of rope that it seems like he kind of throws up into the air and it turns into a ladder. And then he just kind of climbs up the ladder and seems to almost put like a portable hole on the ceiling and climb through. <laughs> but also maybe sam's just on drugs right? i don't know what's going on yeah that
0: really happened or not right i just like i love how the fbi like has all these secret doors like all these passages they just just pop into your apartment it's Like, oh yeah <laughs> you know, and they're just like <laughs> and they're very affable even though they're the villains they're like hey how's it going you know hey, hey are you sam you know right um sure. i actually re- uh think that the magic system just going back to that for a second might be the closest resemblance in early gaming would be to uh Rune Quest original request because it's treated as a knowledge a skill and so you you have these um runes that which cover areas of sort of expertise or or ways to affect the world around you so one of them could conceivably be like mind or you know one could uh and you have skill ratings in them so you have percentage skill rate and you also have these magic points which are tied to your uh willpower attribute um so as you deplete those, you become more tired, which is what's happening when he does that, or when he does the the final bull jump, which is his greatest sort of feat of magic. In he sort of possesses the head of the FBI temporarily. Um, so I think again, I would have to look at RuneQuest because I haven't really played it in a long time. But I think that was uh, closer, and I think also kind of might be kind of significant because um, the guy who created RuneQuest, um, uh, Greg Stafford, was also in Oakland, in sort of that northeastern uh, northern California. Uh, seen he's he he was definitely a spiritual seeker. I think he actually had underpinnings of understood sort of um what magic how it's expressed in our real world as opposed Mm -hmm. to sort of a mechanical thing that um as as is expressed in DD. So interesting, yeah, Hmm. yeah. I mean, I could be wrong, but I I think there's some a a strain that goes through to that. So, yeah,
1: I think uh, that's a really great point. Um, I also think another thing that uh is worth mentioning is you know in the original monster manual we have a whole section on different funguses Mm -hmm. and a whole (laughs) section on different molds yeah and in some ways they're very much taken directly from here and in some ways they're definitely not but for example one of the monsters in the monster manual is the violet fungus and we on our first page here we have violet fungus they talk about violet fungus throughout it's not a monster it's just like a delicious purple fungus that grows on the (laughs) walls that you want to cut in a certain way so it grows back because you want to keep eating it right but the phrase (laughs) violet fungus comes from this but also yellow mold in the original monster manual is this thing where if you if you disturb the corpse that's covered in yellow mold the spores explode everywhere and you end up dying as a result of it. And that was very much like what happens with the yeast plague. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that scene where Sam um, is hesitant to leave the body of the FBY agent there who just died of the plague because he's essentially left like a, like a fungal trap for the next person who walks in the room. So Mm -hmm. he's kind of like having this, moral dilemma of do i report the body so that the people can come and remove it or do i just like walk away from it and leave it alone
0: mm-hmm. and there is a typology of funguses because there's the one that just caught is the one that's neural so you don't blow up like a giant yeast bomb yeah um, which there's may, a
1: neurolytic and the pulmonary
0: right which may be what killed cindy Ann, although Kira's is like ah, oh, no she probably just had a weak heart because they just you know do too much drugs and don't do, <laughs> <laughs> <you> don't do <laughs> just chill out there on level g um <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then there's the the cryogenic funguses that right. uh, yes. that, that Kiro is cultivating. And right. so I mean you have people who are like manipulating the the different kinds of fungus. Right, right. Uh, to to use them as a weapon. Like she mm-hmm. used she uses the cryogenic one, kind of throwing it at the F, at the I guess they're not FBY guys, they're right. the disposal crew. <laughs> oh you're
1: right. You're right. I got your yeah. there. Now I had a hard time envisioning what was happening with the cryogenic mushrooms. Now, what was the area filled with snow, and they threw it at the snow, and then it just started multiplying? How did that work?
0: I my my take on it was that their guns were just—I uh, mean, there was shooting out uh, carbon dioxide, but it was so cold it was basically freezing the air. Okay. And the funguses love the cold, so they were just growing along the surface of that. When they were yeah. Running. Oh, okay. That's and, what I imagined and, like, too. Yeah. And also coming back to Kira for a minute, and maybe this is the literary side. It was a little what do you think was the significance of having her be his half sister, Sam's half sister? Um, you know, he's sort of attracted to her and then not, and then like about four fifths of the way through the, you know, point he goes, Oh, you know, she's your, or Kira says, Oh, I'm your half sister, you know? <laughs> right. um, is there a, a literary trope in there? I mean, maybe it's like a Oedipus or something. I don't know. Um,
1: I feel like it was foreshadowing of, you know, there's something clearly different going on with Kira Kira's tapped into something, like she knows who Despoina is. Uh, she kind of understands this underworld. Um, she's kind of privy to a lot of secrets that normal people aren't privy to. And everybody keeps recognizing that not everybody, but some people keep recognizing that there's something wrong slash special about Sam, that maybe he's a witch or something. And then I think by having Margaret St. Clair tell us that the two of them are siblings, it's a way of kind of further cementing this idea of like, yes, actually, Sam is not part of the regular world. Sam is part of this other world that Kira, on some level, belongs to. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. No, that, I didn't have anything deep.
2: Yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't have anything especially deep either. But I mean, I, it, it does seem like there's there's a sense that Sam and and Kira and Despina and all of the members of of the craft are are there's like de- a sense of destiny or fate. So kind of connecting them, connecting them by blood seems like it relates to that in some way.
0: Mm-hmm. And which um,
2: it, would, oh sorry yeah, go ahead no no, no.
0: I, and I think I, I like I love how the FBI as you said thinks it's just a bag of tricks. So they're like you know just. Uh, self-mutating uh mutating themselves it's just like oh if i just grow an extra lobe on my brain i'll have all the powers of the craft it's you know it's like just as simple as abc right and there's no spiritual initiation or anything like that that they have to go through um which is their failure of course so um
1: so let's we can get kind of in the weeds with kind of a rulesy thing here so (laughs) inside of the labyrinth oftentimes there is this kind of phosphorescent covering of the walls that allow for kind of basic dim lighting kind of anywhere you go for the most part not always but it was there a lot and in dungeons and dragons and similar games oftentimes characters are holding a torch which like i've seen youtube videos and torches don't actually help you like if you're walking through a cave it just it blinds you more than anything (laughs) and they're hot and they burn out and they're dangerous uh, so torches aren't very realistic, but neither is phosphorescent cave uh, cave wall coverings. So <laughs> just in general, what are your guys' thoughts on the ability for player characters to navigate under terrain and uh, to see or not to see?
2: Hmm. I, I mean, one thing I thought was really interesting, I don't know if this answered your question, is that in the upper levels... Sam has to bring a flashlight and he's always worried about having enough batteries for his flashlight. But then, uh, or at least that's kind of, you know, when he's in his initial place where he lives on level E or whatever it is. Um, But then the deeper that he, the deeper he goes, he even describes it later that he's, um, he's sort of tired of living underground where it's like daylight all the time because, and, and it, it seems like it's something more than just like phosphorescence on natural walls and some of them in some of the places underground where it's this kind of continual artificial daylight that's right. te- technologically based or something. I don't know. But from a gaming perspective, that struck me as, as, as interesting because, you know, as, the GM could kind of construct an environment in which the players don't need to figure out <laughs> whether they're they have you know continual light on their torch all the time or whatever
0: <laughs> right and I think conversely I think it's uh, in veins of the earth uh, by Patrick Stewart that they make life uh, light literally like light equals life if you don't have light you're gonna go insane within you know <laughs> 30 minutes and and uh you know whatever and I, I could say that I've never gone caving but I did go when I was uh, in vietnam i did go to the tunnels that were where the tunnel rats went in in the the war and these had been enlarged for tourists already and that was like like 10 feet in i was you know you know sort of not crawling but i was squatting and i started sweating like crazy i don't think of myself as a claustrophobic person but i was like sweating my heart rate was elevated (laughs) and so um I don't, you know, we don't. We generally kind of hand wave that in at least regular D and D games, but it might be interesting in a sort of more horror based game like Call of Cthulhu to sort of like, hey, your light source is going out. What's going to do? You know, I know Torchbearer side of kind of does that. Um, it's not particularly heroic, I guess, but I think it would be an interesting thing to throw at uh, your characters if they're supposed to be emulating sort of more um, baseline humans or creatures of that environment. Sure.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess Katie, as, as a as a matter of just personal Gaming style preference, do you prefer to just kind of hand wave light and don't worry about it too much? Or do you prefer kind of the careful inventory management of, oh no, I might be running out of torches? But, I, but the flip side of that being, I also have to keep track of my torches.
2: Probably more the former, more the hand wavy side of things, but it, it depends. I mean, it depends upon if it's more, you know, atmospheric or appropriate for there to be, for, for you to have to worry about it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I prefer not to itemize every everything and, you know, make sure that I'm carrying like exactly, you know, like tally up to the to the pound exactly what I'm carrying. I'm like, yeah, that looks like an okay amount for him to carry. Right, right. Sure.
1: And <laughs> keep track of how many 10 minute increments you've had right. your 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 torch going
0: right, until right. it burns out. Right, right. I think the black hack, as I recall, has a pretty interesting, which is a very stripped down OSR rule set. Um, you have what's called a usage die so it starts out like pretty high you can say it's like a d12 and and at intervals your, your game master can say oh roll that d12 oh it comes up a one okay your usage die is down now to next time you have to roll you roll a d10 so it's slowly um uh, decrements but you don't it, but it's not predictable and it's like okay well you've you've rolled your d3 and it came up one. you now have no light right <laughs> right but you're not <laughs> keeping track individually of each torch
1: that's a good idea but you're aware of when you're slowly running lower and lower and lower because that die is getting lower so that's also kind of amping up the
0: the tension uh, exactly
1: exactly yeah the tension and
0: and they use that same die for your rations for your um arrows so it just it's just called the usage die and so i think that's that's an interesting hack for that i've
1: also seen it used for for tracking your your treasure
0: as well Mm -hmm. yeah i could definitely see that and is is your in your gaming katie is your group um because again the systems pathfinder 3.5 sort of privileged detail but into your gate your group sort of more hand wavy in that regard and more focused on sort of the central narrative
2: more focused on the on the narrative i guess and less
0: focused on keeping track of every arrow mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and do you think there would be a time where i mean where it would be fine and appropriate to to be more detail oriented in the you know whether it's your group or el- elsewhere yeah
2: yeah, possibly. Um I mean I I love the system that you just described that is a is a more sort of narrative way of simulating um deprivation or or you know the resources running running low, which happens a lot in this novel for for right. sure when he's you know traveling th- lower and lower and realizing oh I don't have any food with me. I wish I could find some of that purple fungus. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Running out of uh out of equipment and out of gear and out of resources is a very common trope in the appendix then. Mhm. So we are starting to run out of time here. Uh, Katie, is there any last thing that you really wanted to chat about that we didn't get a chance to cover yet?
2: Yeah, actually, okay. There's one question I want to pose to you guys that we didn't have a chance to talk about in the, the kind of more literary part. Um, one thing, the thing that I found the most weird about this novel is when he learns that Kira is the one who actually loosed the yeast plagues. Yes, And, and he... It, you know, it takes it takes him all of half a page to completely come to terms with this, and and he even he even thinks you know. Uh, Despina kind of justifies it by saying nuclear war seemed absolutely inevitable. Uh, we lived in terror, terror which was sure to accomplish itself. No one even dared to hope for a quick death, um, and Kira knew that the plagues are never universally fatal. She decided it was better that nine men out of ten should die than that all men should, and and it takes like half a page for Sam to come to terms with this and and he he thinks of his sister he says mrs prometheus i felt proud to be related to her like (laughs) proud to be related to the person who you know is the 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 committer of the biggest act of genocide ever what did you guys make of that
1: (laughs) i felt like it worked within the content context of the story uh just in the (laughs) sense that like you know so our main character san there's those great scenes where he's operating the bulldozers and helping Mm -hmm. dispose of dead bodies. And there's that one moment where that one body's kind of twitching and his buddy's like, no, 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 that's just gas uh, leaving the body. But then he meets somebody else later who actually was somebody who had been in one of those bags and was still alive and had managed to get out. But I feel like, you know, he just kind of, he experiences so much death and there's so much kind of confusion about what's real and what's not real and what's faded and what's not that I I feel like his experience of that is like, okay, well, this world that we're in is the world that was meant to be. Hmm. And this world that we're in is like deeply dysfunctional, but it's better than the world we were headed towards. I I do feel like Sam does actually believe that on some level.
0: Right, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it was 1963, right? This was within the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis, if I'm I'm recalling it correctly. So that's the context that, that she was writing this story in. So I could almost see that. Um, I guess the closest thing that we could think about now would be, you know, what are the effects of climate change on us, you know, within this century? Um, And then there's people have been saying, yeah, you know, it's better that, um, I'm not saying, but better that if, you know, a great majority of the human race, you know, was no longer here and then things could sort of find an equilibrium. Um, But it is pretty terrifying to think about, but I guess, you know, but Kira's very practical and she just made a choice, right? Kira's just like, okay, all right, we have to do this, (laughs) right?
2: <laughs> and then she gets her punishment, which is three years, three years <laughs> of exile.
0: Exile level. W-
1: witch law. Witch yeah. law, right, right.
0: Not, <laughs> not human law. Witch law. And it's not because she did this thing, it's because she did this thing without consulting with the high council of the witches. Yeah. Right?
1: Exactly. <laughs> it still might have
0: been approved. Right, right. She
1: just didn't fill out the proper paperwork. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining us and sh- Joining us on the show. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure okay. to talk with you guys. And, uh,
0: you know, we would love to, you know, if you're doing the class again and you think it's appropriate, we'd love to join you again in that. And we'd love to hear about how that develops over the course of your curriculum. Thanks. Um, okay. So um, if you want to find us, let us know what's going on. Uh, you can go to uh, iTunes or your podcaster of choice. Please rate us and review us. It helps other people find us. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or at appendix underscore n on twitter we're also on MeWe and facebook anything else Jeff? Patreon.
1: yeah so uh thank you to our patrons on patreon we'd like to give a shout out to ethan schoonover eric johnson andy action we love you andy andrew cairns kurt rossner and noah green you guys rock if you would like to support our show please go to patreon slash appendix and book club Our next episode will be episode 50, Clark Ashton Smith's Hyperborea. Can you believe we're hitting 50, Hoy?
0: Wow. Uh, Well, yep, I'm getting old.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And episode 51 will be on J.R.R. Tolkien's The Two Towers. And with that, we are all wrapped up.
0: See you in the stacks.
1: Read on. The
0: library is closed.